Hey, Mary, have you noticed that dyslexia is all over the news lately? Let's discuss. This is the Reading Teacher's Lounge, where listeners can eavesdrop on professional conversations between elementary reading teachers. We're passionate about literacy and strive to find strategies to reach all learners. Shannon and Mary are neighbors who realized that they were literacy soul sisters at a dinner in their Atlanta neighborhood. Once they started chatting about reading, they haven't really stopped. Come join the conversation. Welcome to episode 12, a conversation about dyslexia. Hey, I'm Shannon Betts, and I've been teaching for over 16 years. My specialty is locating the missing pieces in students' reading development and choosing just right activities to fill those gaps. You can find me online at readingdevelopment.com and at RDNG Development on Twitter and Instagram. Hi, I'm Mary Sagoffi. I'm a reading tutor. I have taught in all elementary grades. I have Orton-Gillingham training, and I have been helping students with reading issues and dyslexia for 10 years. I love talking all things teaching, and I believe that humor goes a long way when asking students and teachers to do hard things. So I'm excited to share with Shannon and learn along with all of you. So Shannon, many teachers think that they know what dyslexia is. But there's been a lot of misinformation that has infiltrated our society and even teaching circles lately. So let's discuss how common and complex dyslexia is and how we can professionally address students with atypical neurological differences. Yeah, what is it that you think that I should know about dyslexia and that other teachers should know about dyslexia? Well, first I think we need to dispel some of the myths about dyslexia. Just today, I happened to find this meme that concisely describes all the things that dyslexia is not. And I really want you to pay attention because um, as I was teaching in elementary schools, I heard all of these things stated by different teachers. Um, And even at times, I may have um, on occasion thought a few of these things about students that I was working with. But let me tell you, dyslexia is not caused by lack of motivation. It is not a visual problem. It is not a problem of laziness. It is not outgrown. It is not caused by parents not reading to their child. It is not seeing letters backwards. It is not rare. And it is not a problem of intelligence. I've heard many of those before as that that is what dyslexia is. So I'm curious to hear what it really is the definition of dyslexia. So throughout our podcast, you know, we've been talking a lot about how complex the process of reading is. And um, I want to keep that fact in mind that reading is a really complex task. Um, And actually, just for any reader, for any reader, because we're asking them to multitask a lot of different pieces of information, and then synthesize those pieces of information. Um, And that that already takes a lot. But not only that, as a species, we haven't actually been reading for that long. True. So our brains were hardwired to use language. Orally. Orally. But they were not hardwired to read. So reading is a skill that has to be taught. And some children, a lot of children, develop this skill quickly and efficiently process language, but that's not true of all students. So that's going to bring us to our discussion today. Um, 
And that is that teachers need to know a lot about what are the signs of dyslexia, how can you help students with dyslexia, how can you make your classroom more dyslexia-friendly. So I want to talk about all those things today. I'm glad to learn about it because I didn't get any training about dyslexia in my undergraduate program other than an overview of special education course I took maybe my first or second year of college. And then I haven't had a lot of staff development over the years with it either. Right. So there's there's a lot of things that are um, problematic about that. And part of it is that there is this large gap in educational training um, and that teachers are just really not taught about dyslexia. Um, and they're really not even taught in general the science of reading. And all of that is really important to understand that this is a neurological-based um, uh, deficit that some children have. Um, they're not going to outgrow it. However, there are some really successful interventions that can make reading um, a, a, a task that students can excel in. And there are lots of people who have become very successful who are dyslexic. Oh, Tom Cruise. Right. That's I like mean, the one that's always quoted. Uh, well, there's, and that he does special things to prepare for his scripts and stuff for his movies. Oh, it's true. I mean, we know that there are writers, artists, brilliant scientists, doctors and attorneys, government and business leaders. I love Richard Branson myself. I find him to be absolutely... The Virgin Airlines guy? Yes. Okay. Um, and he is also the one who just put a car into space recently. No, that's Elon Musk. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, they're all the, rich. They all. I have to say, I always follow. They're rich, eccentric billionaires. <laughs> I bet some Elon. Of them have I bet Elon Musk don't. might be on that that list as well. <laughs> don't quote me on that one. But re- regardless, um, a lot of dyslexics are very creative thinkers, and they have lots of strengths. So. When I am talking about children with dyslexia, I'm always searching for strengths-based teaching opportunities. So, um, And because you work with dyslexic students, that, right. um, do you share those to motivate them? Like, look, this student, oh. I mean, this these adults have grown up. They're productive in society. They learn to read. They've learned to have jobs. And- yeah, I will tell you. So I'm going to talk about my friend today. His pseudonym is Rigby, which I really love. Um, but I interviewed him, and he's a student that I've been working with for a while now. Um, but I started tutoring him when he was in first grade. And when he turned into second grade, when the year switched over, his mom gave me a copy of his business card. And she... Um, is an entrepreneur herself and a self-made businesswoman, and she works in marketing. And he had his own business card, and she would at night or around the kitchen table or whatever talk with him about some strategies. And so since age eight, he has already had this entrepreneurial background. I love that. He already considers himself um, an entrepreneur. And the fact that his family has absolutely embraced that and he does actually have really brilliant ideas because he does think outside of the box and it's really exciting. So I have to say with really amazing family support and support from teachers who understand and you know, his family, I think they would describe it as they found their tribe of people to support. I think that's so essential in making sure that um, dyslexia isn't um, something that is uh, a stress, but it can be a source of joy and it can be a source of um, uniqueness. And I love I love focusing on that. I want to talk to um, the teachers who are out there because I sometimes as you're reflecting at the end of the day and you think about your students, um, you may 
just imagine, oh, there's that one student who just, I, I just can't reach him or her. Well, let's call him a him. He is smart and he is sweet and he he seems to work really hard but man his work is just not up to par he's not spelling well he's making mistakes i'm constantly going back and circling and telling him he needs to put a period at the end of his sentence and you start to kind of put him in the category of lazy and i want you to stop and reframe it in the context that i've just been talking about We're talking about neurological differences. And I want you to come back to the point where, you know, maybe you could see this kid as a person who has dyslexia because we're going to talk about the facts. And the facts are one in five students have dyslexia. That statistic stuns me. It's really impressive. So um, if you uh, are interested or if you have anyone in your life that you love who has dyslexia and you want to learn more about it, pause the podcast and go pick up the book Overcoming Dyslexia by Sally Shaywitz. She is the guru of dyslexia and she runs the Yale Center for Dyslexia. Um, And she has a really clear and concise way of describing it and demystifying what dyslexia is. So um, they have some uh, really great resources on their website. So I would also encourage you to go and check that out. We'll link that to that in the show notes as well as the book title. So let's talk a little bit about what dyslexia is, what the definition is. And that is that it's an unexpected difficulty in reading in relation to an individual's higher level of intelligence. So that means that a student has a high level of intelligence. They're capable in many other areas, um, but they have an unexpected difficulty in reading in relation to their higher level of intelligence. So those who are with dyslexia are slow readers, but paradoxically, they're often very fast and creative thinkers. And then dyslexia is, off, is a difficulty appreciating the individual sounds of spoken language. So when Shannon and I are talking about phonological awareness, dyslexics have to have explicit um, teaching about phonical phonological awareness because they're not automatically taking those sounds apart right exactly so that's just taking um the individual sounds apart and then that can also lead to difficulties with rhyming and difficulties with um word prediction and it also um dyslexia also affects a person's ability to rapidly retrieve words um that he or she may want to say Um, or to isolate the sounds within a spoken word and then attach the appropriate letter to the sound. So those people with dyslexia struggle to read fluently, they struggle to spell words correctly, and they often um, struggle to learn a second language. But dyslexia is not reversing letters. Okay, that's a big misconception. It's a big misconception. It's, It's all of the thought process that's required to manipulate sounds can be difficult. It could be word retrieval, it could be letter retrieval, it could be sound retrieval. And all of those processes are different because it's a different parts of your brain. Well, and if you've met one person with dyslexia, you've met one person with dyslexia. It's brain based and everyone's brain is different. Wow. So, um so not all dyslexics. No, it, it's very very different or have the same difficulties. Right. So then that also makes dyslexia a lifelong condition, right? So you can learn to compensate in different ways, which is what is taught and how they are trained. Um, but it does affect one in five people, and that's approximately 20% of our population. 
So I have approximately 20 kids in my class, so possibly four of those right. could have dyslexia. And remember that it can also be a spectrum. So there could be some kids who have more profound dyslexia symptoms and some who are you know, better able to compensate. Um, so there's a spectrum, but that nonetheless, it still means that we need to explicitly teach skills to these students. And we cannot just assume um, that they're going to get the information on just one lesson or one worksheet that they're practicing. Right. So, um, I also wanted to just bring up this fact. So as a special education teacher about 10 years ago, you know, we had so many discussions about autism and it was prevalent in the news all the time. One in 68 kids has autism. One in 68. I'm talking about one in five students. Wow. Right. And we have come a long way in inclusion and talking a lot about autism um, and making sure that people are aware of autism. But 20% of the population, we have to start a discussion about dyslexia. Well, we're just even saying the word, okay? Because right. it seems like in the state that I teach in, which is Georgia, it we weren't ever able to say that word, even in... Um, when we had students being screened right, for special education, even when we were writing IEPs or going through their psychological evaluations, right. the word dyslexia was never uttered. It was specific learning disability. Mm-hmm. And I know that you've done some advocacy work and that this is why this has been in the news lately is that we're finally actually starting to use the term dyslexia. Right, exactly. Well, in 2015, the federal government wrote a letter um, explaining to all states that dyslexia is a term that should be used. And in fact, it has been used for 30 years um, under the IDEA law. And remember, that's the Individuals with Disabilities Act. And that's the one that started giving students IEPs and access to special education on an individual basis. So um, states did not have to uh, necessarily recognize Um, the category of dyslexia, they were able to kind of lump it into um, a specific learning disability. But let's go back to that definition. It's an unexpected reading difference, not based on a person's intellectual ability. So that's very different. You may have some students who are, um, you know, performing at a lower level who do have a lower IQ Um, And they're being grouped in the same group with students with dyslexia. And teaching those students require very different skills. Mm -hmm. And and working together can be extremely frustrating for a student with dyslexia who happens to be a quick thinker who also needs processing time to comprehend what they're reading. Um, So that makes it really difficult. The thing is that we, we should say dyslexia. Dyslexia requires a really explicit set of trained skills that teachers should have and um, uh, as a person who's been trained in Orton-Gillingham going to a 10-hour workshop does not make you Orton-Gillingham certified so we need to clarify that and and then what's the question is a lot of parents say well what is Orton-Gillingham what does that mean Um, and and it's a multi-sensory approach to systematically teach phonological skills to students on an individual level. So for many years, Orton-Gillingham has 
recommended just one-on-one because it's a prescriptive way of tutoring. So when I'm working with a student, I'm going to be very prescriptive in my lesson plans if they're not making 80 to 90 percent, we're not going to move on. That mm. means that I have not taught that lesson um, to the point where that child completely understands. Right. Um, and when they're able to apply it. So I need to give them lots of different experiences in a multisensory way. Right. You said multisensory. So that means it's touch, it's auditory, it's tactile, mm-hmm. it's visual. Yep. You're so they're, they're the verbally, senses. you know, restating it, and they're doing it simultaneously. And that part is really important, too, in order to reconnect the brain. Um, and I, I will just throw this little tidbit in because I love this fact, and I may have mentioned it in a previous podcast, but they've done um, functional MRIs with the brains, looking at the brains of people who have dyslexia. And after um, 100 hours of training, the the brains actually physically change wow. in the imaging. And so you can see that it can be really successful. However, um, a lot of public schools are not able to provide all of those skills to their students because they may not have a qualified teacher. Um, and if it needs to be one-on-one, that's expensive. Well, the and- training is expensive and intensive. And then being able to um, provide a resource one-on-one to students is right. difficult in the school setting. Which leads to another big educational gap, and that is that most of the people who are able to do this happen to be um, in more affluent communities who happen to have all of the resources. And if you are in a community that is lacking in some resources, then we are also seeing, you know, the deficits in those communities as well. We're talking about one in five people. Wow. And I've heard another statistic, um, it varies, and this one I heard in it was in the Texas prison population. Um, they were able to recognize that fifty percent of the prisoners in the Texas prison population actually had um, either a learning disability or dyslexia. That breaks my heart. It really does. And um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the frustration and the social and emotional impact that dyslexia can have on students because. They're not lazy. Oftentimes, students with dyslexia are working much, much harder than their peers to try to keep up. Um, They are often trying to mask the symptoms um, of not being able to read. They're often trying to hide the fact that they can't read because socially they're quite aware that they're on the low end of the totem pole in the classroom. Everyone sort of puts themselves, um, even as early as kindergarten, who are the smart kids and who are not the smart kids. And it, I guess it feels like out of their control. It absolutely, and it is out of their control. Um, I also read that students um, who are not diagnosed with dyslexia um, after age or before age 10 have more tendencies to have very high levels of stress and anxiety and frustration. Um, And that is true for a lot of students. So the stress, anxiety, depression, negative self-images, all of those things make it really challenging um, for students to not only behave in school, but also, you know, to apply themselves because their their self-esteem is just on the floor. It also makes it challenging to remediate these students. You have to really work so hard. Um, When I'm tutoring a kid, I will say, I'm going to ask you to do hard things. 
and I try and put a lot of humor in our lessons and we take talking breaks and we chat about a lot of things and then we go back and we do hard things because you're literally rewiring their brain and those through hard those things activities may look like you know a, a sentence to write writing a sentence can be really challenging hard work for some people and um yeah, so we, we earn a lot of rewards when I work with people. And sometimes those rewards are just, you know, downtime where we're talking and making jokes. Um, I, uh, I have a really great relationship with Rigby, my, my student. And um, we, we chat all the time about, you know, what are some important things to, um, to talk to uh, your teachers about? How do you advocate for yourself? Um, you know uh, what? What it, so? What I asked him was, what advice would you give to other kids who have dyslexia? And without missing a beat, he just said, "Don't lose hope, and it's okay to ask for help." And I have to tell you, when he told me that, my heart just melted because asking for help is the hardest thing that he can do. He never wants to feel like. Um, he is less than and when he does ask for help it sometimes does make him feel like he's a little less than but I think he's starting to notice that smart kids ask the best questions Mm -hmm. which is something that I preach all the time Um, and he's starting to uh, see himself as as a kid who's smart in his class which I I love love. yeah because if he asks you questions then that's giving you, and ask for help, and that's giving you some insight into what his brain might be doing. Because I tell my students, even not not the ones with dyslexia, but just any of my students, especially my struggling readers, I'm like, I can't unzip your head and look in your brain and see what it's doing. That's, so yep. it would help me when you communicate. I, you know, when they tell me that the shorty and short I sound the same, I'm like, oh, thank you for telling me that because now right. I know what to do. We can it, do activities. So communicate. Tell me what feels hard. Tell me what feels easy. Tell me what you get and what you don't get. Well, and it, it makes a world of difference when you have a, a level of trust with the student that you're working with. And it does take a long time and a lot of effort to build up that trust, but it's really, really important. Um, can okay. you help me, because um, you were just talking about Rigby, and mm-hmm. you were saying that the hard thing he was doing, and he's in an upper grade elementary, mm-hmm. was writing a sentence. Oh, yeah. So can you describe sure. some of the things that maybe, as a classroom teacher, I wouldn't know would be hard for the dyslexic sure. students, that I might get frustrated with them, or they because they can't do it, and I didn't know that they weren't able to do it, or maybe I asked them to do a classroom task, and it's something that they would get frustrated. Right. So um, we, so with Rigby, he um, he's going to do whatever you ask him to do, and he's going to do it to the best of his ability, and he just kind of puts his nose to the grindstone and is going to do it. Um, but really, and maybe the parents can relate at home, what happens is then he comes home, and he is totally exhausted. And what happens is that he has an extended amount of homework at night. And Mm. that is really frustrating to him. Uh, I did actually ask him um, two of those questions. So I said, what could teachers do um, to just sort of help you 
kind of click in and tune in to the lesson that they're starting. And he said for him, he's kind of a big picture thinker. So I sometimes describe him as like seeing the forest and not the trees, um, which is sort of a typical dyslexia analogy. Um, But he said that actually it helps a lot when the teacher gives a real world connection to what they're going to do or what they're about to start. Um, because then he doesn't feel like it's just a busy work task. Okay. It's got a purpose. They're yeah. hooked into it. Yep. He wants to know, when am I ever going to use this in life? Relevancy. Um, yeah. And that that's really important to him. And then I asked him, what is the task that teachers make you do that is just the hardest, worst, most daunting task? And for him, he said, it's word problems. Um, he does love math, and he's always loved math, but he has really struggled in fourth and fifth grade, especially with word problems. Um, he says that they use a strategy called UPS check. And I said, okay. He said the first part is to write a sentence about how you understand it. Second, write a sentence about how to plan the problem. Third, write another sentence about how you solved the problem, and then go back and check your work. And he says all of those things are the worst. So he has to write three sentences. Not only that, it's about how you understand it. So it's difficult for him to retrieve the information about how to explain. He wants to just solve it. He wants to say, okay, here's a problem. I'm going to think it through. I just want to solve it. So it's really difficult to get him to show his work, but let alone write a sentence about how you understand it is really hard for him. And then how to plan it That actually goes back to um, uh, some of the executive functioning issues that a lot of students struggle with and being able to explain how to solve something and go multi-step process through things. And then the, the next part is write a sentence about how you solved the problem. This is the part that gets me. He's like, I solved the problem. Please don't make me tell you how I solved it. The answer is right there. Um, But really, the hardest part is really going back and checking work. He's worked so hard just to get that one answer that it's like... It just feels like the mountain is never done. Absolutely. And I can understand why teachers would give that assignment. Correct. Because like our state test, on the math test, it will show you... um, a, a picture of a, of a student's worksheet, you mm-hmm. know, work where they solved a problem. Yep. And then it will ask a student to analyze how that student solved that problem and then write a paragraph explaining why that student got that problem right or why that student got that problem wrong. And so it's not even the student who's taking the test in your classroom that's solving the problem. They're looking at this fictional student's work in a booklet and trying to put that to words and I can only imagine how difficult that would be for Rigby yeah absolutely yeah all of that is so abstract so you know when you're breaking it down for students make sure that you're really breaking it down and the other piece is that um you know that is mentally exhausting for us just to explain it to you just imagine how he goes through you know half of half of his school day by lunchtime how is he feeling school's exhausting for him and, and I have noticed that one or two of his teachers have said, he's just not working as hard as he can. But they can't see in his brain. And it, it makes might me not cringe have an a little understanding bit. as much of dyslexia to understand what his brain is doing. Right. And so if you ever have the opportunity to do a dyslexia simulation, I highly recommend it. Um, the What's that? Dyslexia Training Institute uh, has some videos online, which are absolutely wonderful. But um, we all know that 
dyslexics, well, if you don't know, listen up because I'm telling you right now, dyslexics don't see words that are flipped backwards. They don't read backwards. Um, the letters are not um, completely jumbled, but they might not be um, uh, visualized in the same way. It has nothing to do with their vision. It's their brain processing the information and okay. and the letters. The sticks and the circles and the, <coughs> the order that they're in. Um, yes, and sometimes it is, you know, that they have difficulty on, you know, seeing B's and D's and P's and Q's, um, but that really has more to do with how they're processing the written language rather okay. than um, just seeing things flipped. Um, okay. It's not so easy to say that, oh, it's an I thing. So it's how they're connecting the symbols to the sounds Correct. to the meanings of the words? Yes, exactly. That's exactly okay. right. So it has a lot to do with sound letter correspondence um, and word attack skills. Uh, I'm going to... Uh, um, I, I'm thinking still about, you know, maybe what I do need to do is explain a little bit of what dyslexia is, because we've talked a lot about what dyslexia is not. But um, it, it is um, difficulty learning letters and sounds and then organizing written and spoken language and then reading that quickly enough to understand. Um, now I feel like I've kind of gone on my tangent and I've lost my train of thought. Where were we? <laughs> You're talking about the signs of dyslexia and a little bit more about what dyslexia is, what it looks like when a student has it. I'll come back to my other statement, but you know how it goes, listeners. <laughs> um, so uh, another piece that's really difficult for or as a sign of dyslexia is obviously spelling, learning a foreign language, and then also doing math operations correctly. Sometimes those those pieces can get jumbled um, uh, as the brain is processing. And then for elementary age children, uh, sorry for my shuffling papers, they may have a difficult time remembering simple sequences, like such as counting to 20. Really? Mm -hmm, leaving out some numbers um, and, and actually just having a space there and, and not even recognizing that they've missed that number. Sometimes naming the days of the week in a sequence is difficult, um, or reciting the alphabet can be difficult too. Um, and another thing that I really want to, you know, say to teachers is don't always do the alphabet song. Do some of the alphabet letters out of order, and parents as well. Make sure that they really are understanding it's not the full song. L M N O P right. is not one, one actual letter, letter. Um, and that does happen. Um, and Y and Z. Why, yes. And is, an and is not its own letter. Um, so uh, the other part is uh, working with rhyming words. Um, elementary kids may have trouble recognizing words that, be, that begin with the same sound and overgeneralizing um, words. They may have pronunciation difficulties. Uh, they might be your kids who often say biscotti or breakfast instead of breakfast. Um, and that's not com a complete language difficulty, and it's not to say that all kids who make those mistakes are going to also be dyslexic. Um, but sometimes those those suspicions can lead um, later on. If a child is not correcting their speech that way and it keeps getting jumbled, words keep getting jumbled, that might be a sign. Um, for me, this was what I had so much trouble with when I was younger, and that was um, clapping your hands to the rhythm of a song. 
My mom had to work really hard with me on that one. And I do have some dyslexic tendencies, um, especially related to numbers, um, which is just kind of an interesting fact about myself. Uh, uh, you know, here's another one. <laughs> another thing that maybe I do at, at times too. Difficulty with word retrieval and, and frequently using words like stuff or that thing rather than the more specific words to name the object that you're talking about or more specific vocabulary. Um, they may have trouble remembering the names of people and places, and they may have difficulty remembering spoken directions. So I just want to reiterate that not all of these difficulties are going to result in a student with dyslexia, and only formal testing can clarify or confirm a diagnosis of suspected dyslexia. Right. We can't just say, oh, I think this student has it. I know they have it. Let me have a conversation with the parent about it. Exactly. We because, can't do that. Right. No, we, we can't do that. Only... Um, a psychologist, a licensed psychologist, can do the actual testing. Private psychological testing um, can be done, and also schools can do it. And I talked about that in the Learning Disabilities 101 um, podcast. I don't remember, but I think it's episode five, uh, if you want to go back and ones. listen to it. Um, so, so, dyslexia- so what if we have a student in our class who we think might have it is showing some of those signs and we have sort of a feeling about it what are some things that we could do in our classrooms to make it more dyslexia friendly i'm going to keep this short and simple and sweet and the first part is to one understand the facts about dyslexia understand what it is read a couple articles find out a little bit more information make sure if your student has an iep read the iep understand what those test scores mean and ask questions um So dyslexics often face a lot of challenges in reading and time awareness, writing, spelling, note-taking, and rote memory. So we've talked about that. How can you change your classroom to make that a little bit more friendly for them? Um, One, you can encourage strengths. um, And that means that, you know, you can change assignments. You can reduce assignments a little bit. Just because um, all the other students are doing 20 math problems, this student could probably do 10 problems, and you would get, you know, um, probably better work out of them. Okay. Uh, So be cognizant of the task that's asked of those students and monitor their frustration. Yes. Um, And then not only that, make sure that you're um, encouraging teaching big picture Um, and making sure that you're discussing things, make sure that you talk things over. Not everything has to be written down and recorded for a grade. Make sure that you are tying it to real-world things. Um, Oftentimes, kids learn best by direct experiences. So how can you have direct experiences in your classroom? Um, Provide uh, opportunities to learn with pictures and stories. Um, Make sure that you don't overcorrect. For Rigby, my student, he hates more than anything when I get out a red pen and start to go and correct all of his work. It is the worst thing possible. I can almost see him tensing up. Oh, it's so awful. seeing the red pen come out. Yes. Um, Allow extra time. Um, Make sure that you're utilizing assistive technology. Use a note taker if possible. Provide notes for them. Break information into steps. Uh... Use an open book format for testing or maybe a formula card. So um, I do that anyway because I tell the students that 
you know, at this point, we can get any answer we want from our phones. That's right. And so we don't really live in a world where we have to memorize everything all the time, but we do need to find information quickly. So I'm like, if you can find the information in your book and the time frame that we have the assessment, that's fine. I feel like many teachers could say that a dyslexia-friendly classroom is just really a good teaching classroom. That's really what it boils down to. Um, make sure that a you're... A responsive classroom. Someone Absolutely. who... A teacher that notices their students and adjusts and differentiates for what a lot that of student times, needs. Special education just boils down to best practices. Um, I do want to say a little bit about audiobooks and making sure that you utilize oral testing if needed. So audiobooks, you can... Um, many schools have a subscription to Learning Ally, which provides audiobooks essentially for free for schools. I think that there's a one-time fee that they pay, but Learning Ally is a fantastic resource. I've never heard of that one. Uh, it, it used to be free, um, and it used to be actually for students who were blind, but oh. they have opened it to um, accommodate for a variety of different needs. Um, make sure that you, I touched on this a bit, but I want to reiterate, allow for fewer assignments, more time to complete assignments, and make sure that you nurture the whole child, promote and recognize strengths, and minimize the classroom stress. I think we can all agree that that's what everyone wants. Yes. <laughs> um, okay, I want to close on one final note, and that is for parents. Because I know that there are a lot of parents who come to me and are seeking um, advice now that I am working with parents to advocate for their kids with dyslexia. So I just found this meme today, and uh, I'm going to repost it on our page as well. But this is to parents of a newly diagnosed kid with dyslexia. It's going to be okay. Your child is still the same child, and your love for them won't ever change. There will be days that are hard, heartbreaking even, and it's okay to not be okay. Just don't get stuck there because your child needs you to be strong. And when you think it, you have it hard, remember that it's harder for your child. Find your tribe. Find those who support you and understand that the path that you're walking. Channel your emotions towards the fight and fight for services, quality education, and quality of life. Never give up. Always have hope. And your child is going to teach you so much. I love that. And even as a teacher, it's helpful for me to hear that because mm -hmm. if I have any interactions with parents, um, if we're at a psychological evaluation or something and we're writing that initial IEP or, right. or something like that, then this is what the parents would be feeling. So. Yeah. It, it often feels very lonely, very frustrating, and it often feels like... Um, a, a sentence to them mm. and, and and it's heartbreaking because you hear a lot of these statistics but really if we can start the conversation and get people more informed I feel like it's going to make a big difference I really hope that you've stuck around and listened to a lot of this information I know that there's a lot of information but it is essential to helping kids um, become better readers thank you for educating me and all of our mm -hmm. listeners today Mary I learned a lot and I'm going to check out all those resources that you mentioned so we're going to link to them in the show notes for everyone to check out great thanks so much